Hi, I'm Mark Rubenstein. And I'm panicked about the Fed panicking. Lindsay, how are you? KJ. Hey, what's up? an old Phoenix Suns named KJ, Kevin Johnson. Right. He was good. I'm switching everything to Jensen. And Jensen is Norwegian? That's about as Norwegian as he gets, yes. Because the J, and how do you pronounce it in Norway? Jensen. Mm-hmm. He'd be the son of Jens or Jens. So is it insulting that I call you Jensen? No, it's fine. All through, my, all through my high school. Well, then uh, I'm just going to go teachers. with Jensen. If it's not insulting, I'm just going to go with how it should be pronounced. Hester Kirk. Hester Kirk Jensen. <laughs> That's me. Oh, the times we had. The hangovers we had. Speaking of hangovers, I have an Englishman on the phone. <laughs> He's probably got a pint of Guinness, and we're going to keep him waiting so he has, gets a little sauce before this happens. Uh, going a little selfish on this episode to geek out. The, I rarely get to do this. I, I talk to super smart people around things I don't understand. Uh, this time I'm going to talk to a super smart person uh, where I act like I think I know what I understand. But seeing that I'm a little panicked and confused about the Fed and confused about the markets and tech and fintech and lending and the economy and post-COVID and the world, I thought I'd talk to one of my favorite uh, financial bloggers and get him on the show. Is that okay? I think that's a great okay, idea. Jensen? That's okay, Linzon. The uh, pronounced Linzon by, uh, no one has pronounced it like that, so welcome. Linzon. You know, JC calls me Linzon. You're in the Linzon. Right. So let's get right to it. I'm going to introduce our guest, Mark Rubenstein. He's an uh, investment pro, 25 years plus experience researching and investing in financial service companies. You know, I, I fancy myself a fintech investor. Yes. The statements say, the cards say that. He is a retired partner, which means, you know, he made a few shekels or a quid or whatever you call them over there in the UK at Lansdowne Partners. They're one of Europe's largest hedge funds uh, from where he advised on management of award-winning four billion dollar global long short financials equity fund boring <laughs> and previously led european banking sector equity research at credit Suisse. and you know that's pretty cool been around the block a few times and uh he's an active value investor that's in vogue right now canute so they say okay and he does early stage fintechs and i i i love his blog net interest it's a weekly newsletter on financial sector theme. So listen, I play a financial investor on Twitter and stock twits <laughs> and the internet. This guy actually does it. Right. And he looks apart. Like you take one look at Ben, you go, hey, hedge fund guy. And a porn star or hedge fund guy I used to have that show and uh, Ben's a hedge fund guy. The And his Twitter handle's at Mark, M-A-R-C-R-U-B-Y. And it's cool because, like, he's super smart, and I think he follows me and reads my blog. So kudos to Howard, Linzone. So, uh, and he's panicked about the Fed panicking, which is really a good topic 
for this discussion because here we are, you know, ending the first quarter. Tech is a disaster. The Fed has not quite, you don't know when the show will air, but the Fed has said things are going to, uh, rates are going to be hiked. And in, in my business, Canute, it's kind of like sports. Like, this is what you talk about. And this is why none of us uh, women don't like us in in, in the world, because this is what we talk about. Mm. And so he's also writing for Bloomberg Opinion. Um, so uh, let's get Mark on the phone. Hello, UK. Are you in a red phone booth? <laughs> They've all been taken over. There's no phones in phone booths anymore. They're there. Are they? So what does happen inside those now? I forget the last couple of years when I was there. Are they all taken away or are there a few of them left or what do they do? No, they kind of literally they kind of collect as items, but they, they have in the villages around England. They'll they'll put books in there and they, they become kind of village libraries. What is the best thing? about living in London in 2022? London's great. So the best thing about living in London in 2022 is its proximity to pretty much everywhere else in the world, right? So you, mm-hmm. you, can, you, you can head into Europe for a day trip, for a weekend away, skiing in the Alps. Its location is just phenomenal. London itself is pretty good, but its location within Europe is also phenomenal. So let's talk about in the US, they're talking about inflation. We're all we worry about the Fed. Do you worry about the Fed in the UK too? It sounds like you do, based on what you're panicked about. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, the Fed drives monetary policy. Global, the dollar is the reserve currency of the world, and the Fed determines its value, uh, and that has global ramifications. Um, I worry as well about central bank in the UK, the Bank of England, which has already started to hike. There's been two hikes now. There's going to be a third, and you've got to go back many, many years. For the last time, they raised three times consecutively. Oh. Panics me. I, I think the, the Fed, uh, there's not a lot of people in investment markets today that were around in 1994. I started in the city, as we call it in London. I started in investment banking just after 1994. And people at the time were telling me about how difficult the environment was in 94 when, when Greenspan uh, at the time, started raising, and he raised between meetings, and it was a surprise, and fallout across bond markets huh. uh, and trading desks was was wild. Right. People think this is the first time this stuff has happened. This has been going on for 40, 50 years, freaking people out. And in a world where it is freaking you out, how do you how do you think about where the Fed is and where the U.S. is? What's like the, the top-down way you think of things right now? Well, the risks, the risks are different. The Fed now, with hindsight, you can go back and read speeches. Actually, the, the, rates were hiked with just a sentence, with an utterance of Greenspan in a I remember conference. that. They had the briefcase Not, and it was just a sentence. It was yeah, like orange exactly. juice I mean, future. Now, yeah, I mean, the idea now of a full, the idea of uh, dot plots and uh, predictions of where the Fed and second guessing of where the Fed's going to be six months from now and, and passing the statement and comparing it to the previous statement, none of that existed. So communication is a lot better now and therefore the propensity for a surprise should be lower. But the flip side of that is that we've all become kind of immune to it. We've all, people have lived under the Fed put for so long now we've had zero rates for you know i i talk about the financial crisis a lot i was managing money during the financial crisis 
Um, to me, it still feels like pretty recent history. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people think I'm an old guy when I start talking about the financial crisis because it was 15 years ago. It's a long time. But it was really um, frightening. So keep going. So, so yeah, so you're living through that. How does that frame your thinking today? Well, it, fr it frames my, my thinking because it breeds a degree of uncertainty that conditions can change very, very quickly. But the point I really wanted to make was that it's been 15 years where we've been living under this low rate environment. We've had these low, low rates. And that coincides with a period of phenomenal tech innovation. And there's been loads of good stuff that's happened since the financial crisis. Yep. I mean, actually, you know, and, you know, we can go on and talk about crypto a while, but crypto kind of was born of the financial crisis. Um, actually, the iPhone, smartphones were introduced kind of coincident with the financial crisis. Yep. Obviously not related, but the point is there's been a lot of coincident trends post-financial crisis, which makes it very difficult for us today to discern how much of what's going on is low interest rates and, and consistently low interest rates and how much is tech innovation and some of the other good stuff that's happened. Correct. The answer is it's probably a combination of it all, but passing between them, really difficult. And what's interesting, just the true statements that, you know, you got, so you, exactly. So you had the crisis and we just don't know. It was just a perfect storm for investors that came along after you had the Fed put because of the crisis. You had, you know, generally the populace happy, you know, obviously Obama had his haters, but like things calmed down, um, rhetoric dropped and iPhone, Uber, Google Maps, YouTube, everything exploded in software and tech. And so now here we are in 2022, tech is imploding. I mean, you don't see it in the indexes, but you see it uh, and because Apple and Amazon and Google uh, have held up, although Facebook's, you know, caving. Um, and Microsoft's held up, so the so the market cap the the market cap has hidden some of the incredible damage in tech, and like you said in in the opening, you're panicked about panicking about the Fed. Is they're a wild card now? So we've lost tech for a few reasons. We've lost tech because maybe interest rates or or maybe just valuations are coming down because of inflation and interest rates. But we also have lost tech, I think, because Apple's getting more dominant and Google is getting more dominant. And down the food pipe, it's, you know, Facebook, as much as we hated them, is kind of controlled by Apple at some level. And Shopify, as much as we love them, now has to deal with the Facebook and Apple followed themselves, combined with the possible removal of the Fed put at a time when supply chains are screwed up, Brexit makes... UK supply chain probably doubly worse, and the put may be pulled away. So, so with that in mind, is is that kind of what freaks you out? <laughs> now you're making everyone panic. Yeah, man. just hang on That's... here while I sell some things. Hang on, just, let me just go to a break. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'll put it on pause. <laughs> so, so is that kind of when you say you're panicked about the Fed panicking? Is that what you're worried about? Yeah, I think, look, I think they're very data dependent. So and they'll respond to inflationary inputs as they as they come through. But uh, as I say, you go back to 1994, the Fed, uh, the Fed drives 
ultimately, that interest rate, that one interest rate drives the valuation of everything. Everything falls out of that. And they know that clearly, hence communication is smooth and they give guidance as to where they're going to take rates. Um, but we've never had this kind of inflation. People speculated when QE began, going back 12 years, whenever it was, that it would lead to inflation. That never happened. We've now got a bout of inflation. There's various specific reasons why it's happening now. Clearly, the pandemic playing a key role there. But but we've never had this kind of situation of that combination of low rates and so much hinging on low rates and this inflationary specter all at the same time. And you know, maybe nothing will go wrong. Maybe we can walk our way. There was a taper tantrum back in 2013 and we walked back from that. Maybe we can walk the tightrope here. Maybe the Fed can walk the tightrope. But the chance of something going wrong is... It's not necessarily high, but it's higher than it probably has been at any time over the past few years. So here we are, like we said, and no one knows, but prices are moving ahead of things. So in your old hedge fund days, and that was a big book that you guys run, how do you think they look at this going on right now? How would they come into the market like this, if you could guess? Well, it should be a great opportunity because you've now got dispersion. As you said earlier, The you don't see it in the index. The index is the S, uh, we're talking today, the S&P is kind of flirting with correction territory. In other words, down 10% or so from its peak, which is kind of fine. Nothing really that's going to scare yeah, people. Yeah, nothing to panic about. You're not going to panic about that. And so the opportunity to look at sectors. So my background was in financials and financials back in, again, I mentioned before the financial crisis, prior to the financial crisis, the banking sector and financials broadly was close to 20% of the index. It was a big, big chunk of the index. Mm -hmm. City was one of the biggest, might have been the biggest stock in the world. Yeah, I think it was one of the biggest company with travelers, et cetera, yep. Yeah, so these things things go in cycles. And if if we're going through a shift in leadership right now, that should be a very good time for hedge funds. The problem is, and this comes to the debate about value versus growth, is that you've had such a long period where growth has outperformed value that there has been a herding of positions into some of these stocks that have suffered. And actually, I was looking at some data recently, Goldman Sachs compiles data of the most Wide. So, as, as you know, every quarter, mm-hmm. every investment firm has to publish its holdings. So we recently had a list of all the holdings as at end of 2021. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of herding into these names that have performed well in 2021. Mm-hmm. And they're performing less well right now when we're speaking today. Um, but so a lot of it's been given back. So, so for, for an independent-minded hedge fund manager who uh, is prepared to uh, support and back unloved stocks that have underperformed for a long, long period of time. Now it's a very opportune moment. Um, but the flip side is there's a lot that were left holding uh, some of these stocks which had performed well and no longer performing well. And so in FinTech, because uh, you know that's where I invest my seed money, it's been just easy pickings. You know, not that I'm smart, it was just 
when I was interested in disruption or seeing the next E-Trade, and, you know, I, I don't really follow crypto, but you know, haphazardly or as a bull market goes, I got swept alongside. What areas of fintech kind of interest you? I know it's the lending side. Yeah, I like the lending side. Uh, I know you're very interested on the trading side, mm -hmm. uh, which also... I, I, which, which, which I also find we can talk about that. I also find that interesting. Actually, there are some. Whereas lending is pretty universal, the demand for credit is pretty universal. Trading is probably more of a US phenomenon. Actually, also some of the Asian countries than a European phenomenon. There's less yep. retail trading activity in Europe historically mm -hmm. for various reasons. Um, but lending is pretty universal, and I think some of the interesting tech opportunities, fintech opportunities, are around around lending, not just better user experience, which is what I call kind of fintech 1.0, but new product lines, whether it's revenue-based lending or whether it's kind of algorithmic lending, opening up the market for lending or, or employee kind of payroll-based lending, um, opening up the market for new lending products which tech not only makes cheaper than historically lenders were able to provide, but also because it's cheaper, means that unbanked or underbanked segments of the population can access this credit as well. You know, exactly. So I look at lending and I'm like, you're right. US and Asia are the more instant gratification trading. European, maybe because it's just older, and maybe different rules there, I can't remember, but and, and maybe because everything trades <laughs> at, in pence, everything seems like a penny stock in the UK and the way they're, they're traded, people just... Actually, actually just uh, my theory on that is that because gambling has always been legalized in the UK, that the outlet, huh. clearly every human has a appetite to take risk. And the outlet for that historically in the UK has been through gambling rather than, tra rather than investing or trading. And I, I've often thought, I, you know, I, it's difficult to find a control experiment in the US, whether the depth of the capital markets and the low cost of equity in the US actually, actually has something to do with the fact that gambling hasn't been legalized to the extent it had been, at least in the UK. Well, that would be interesting because I was just watching because gambling is now taking off and you can't turn on a TV here. Like it used to be like Betfair and the, you know, obviously UK invented a lot of this gambling stuff and they have their own problems from what I, I just watched a special about, uh, the gambling problem in the UK and how intertwined it is with sports. But here we are in the U S which always had trading and no sports betting. And now we have trading and sports betting. So maybe trade, maybe, Maybe what we haven't factored in and maybe what we may start to see is is volumes dry up on trading over time because betting is just so promoted here and it's you know, you've got so many sports leagues. So maybe that is something that no one's factored into as well, including myself until you just said it, is that we are zigging into sports betting uh, and maybe just diluting people's want to invest in stocks and that may hurt liquidity here that's an interesting thought have you thought about that at all only through so in the in europe we in europe we have had 
so-called, they call them contracts for differences, CFDs. And a lot of the gambling companies straddle both gambling, kind of sports gambling, sports betting, mm -hmm. and also contracts for differences, which is the way that betting manifests in investment markets. It's kind of a contract. It's like, it's like an option, I guess. Yeah. Um, and they've been very popular. They've been very, very popular. So I, so I, you know, how it plays out, I don't know. It's difficult. The other problem is when I look at these trends, there's always a path dependence. You can't negate the past. So it's clearly already the case that there is a like household ownership of stocks in the US is much higher than it is in Europe. Mm -hmm. And that's not going to unwind. People aren't going to sell their stocks to raise liquidity to do sports gambling instead. Good point. So it's difficult. So, so it, it is what it is. We're not going to wind the clock back now. Um, and probably there's room for both markets. Whew. Okay, good. You talked me out of a, a, a side panic there. The, uh, but I mean, I have had my confidence a little shaken. I know everything was overvalued, but I, I, you know, and I was kind of that guy in 2021 saying, don't be greedy, you know, sell on the way up and stocks went up an extra hundred, 150%. And so once you're out, it's very hard to get in knowing that things are overvalued. So that's kind of been my stance the last six, seven months is like, Ooh, glad I sold. Uh, but anything I started buying back looks really dumb and I'm struggling as a non-professional, I would say to figure out how big this change is, or if it's a 10 to 12 year change of trend where value, and I guess that's just the hard part of investing. We just don't know, like is value here for another long cycle is commodities here for another super cycle. Any thoughts there? Well, clearly we don't know the cycle. The, the flip side is there is really, really exciting stuff happening in tech mm -hmm. and the ability to bring some of those projects to market has never, never been easier. The, the, the ability to recruit, to be able to insource talent from all over the world to work on these projects. Mm -hmm. and, and we've seen because of working from home that that's had a step change up over the past couple of years. The ability to raise capital is still venture is still a relatively small part mm -hmm. of global allocations and that's True. been increasing and that's a, a structural secular trend rather than something that's cyclical so and the ability to obviously because of cloud to reduce costs of bringing any of these projects to market is phenomenal and so i so i, I can't see a change in the amount of technology that's percolating to the surface and that's a good thing so uh, so you know whereas we can make a cyclical call on growth versus value growth isn't going away and markets will do what they do and but the, the thing to watch is the thing i'd be watching more closely mm -hmm. rather than the kind of reflexivity here clearly private investment is driven fundamentally by indirectly by the, through the IPO market. So there is a connection mm -hmm. via the IPO market between public markets and private markets. Mm -hmm. But I'd be looking more closely at what's going on in, in, in your business and, and the, the, the appetite to invest in some of these new projects and these founders with these great ideas. Yeah, and I mean, what I... That's the, yeah, when that slows down, that's, that's the concern. Yeah. Actually, conservatives, we've had the opposite. We've had... So for 
what I haven't fully written about, but I did an Odd Lots podcast about trying to flesh out these ideas, and I'll, I'll, I'll share them with you, and then you can bring it around, is that it's gone the opposite way. I thought the private markets would react much quicker to the IPO meltdowns and the SPAC meltdowns and reprice everything. In fact, what's happened, uh, and, and that could change tomorrow, obviously, is that prices in the private market kept going up. So, like, what's the point of being in the private market if they're not recognizing that the valuations in the public markets and growth are coming down? So, you're, yeah, why take risk in the private markets if, you know, and pay 50 times sales for a private company for the next seven to 10 years when I can buy a great growth company at 10 times sales in the public market? So, that's been confusing to me. And maybe it's because we've had such a boom and so many young people in the market, in the private side, and all these crossover fi- funds zigging into the private markets uh, impatiently or at the top when uh, they should have just been waiting their time until growth uh, multiples corrected. But I'm seeing even a scarier phenomenon, and I hope I'm wrong, is that there's still people willing to write these checks into private companies. And they're doing them at ever higher and higher valuations at a time when multiples are coming down. And so you get this glut of, of companies for a decade that just go nowhere. They're not going to go out of business because they have high margins, they're software businesses, they're growth businesses, but they're priced at a point where no one will take them. Yeah, it's an interesting point. And certainly before SPACs became as big as they are or were, mm-hmm there was a feature of markets broadly yep. where companies were staying private for longer. Yep. And it maybe we revert to that. Actually, recently Chime announced it wasn't going to be IPOing in first half 22. It's pushing that out to possibly second half 22. Correct. It's a neobank here in the, in the US. Yeah, it's yeah. A, a US-based neobank. There's a UK-based neobank called Revolut, which is valued last round at $33 billion, mm-hmm. which probably also wouldn't be able to IPO in the current market environment right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it's not a bad thing. The private markets give the, 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 and I always used to think, so the, I always used to think, so Square was a great example. Most of the returns in Square, clearly it's given back some of its gains recently, but over a long period of time since IPO'd in 2014, mm-hmm. most of the returns accrued actually to public market investors rather than private market investors. IPO'd very early. Uh, interestingly, it bought Afterpay, and Afterpay was the same story. Most of Afterpay's value was created in the public sphere rather than the private sphere. So public investors were able to benefit from that. And I, as a public markets guy, often used to think, you know, why would I bother with private when you can access public, you can get daily liquidity, doesn't matter who you are, you know, you can you can log on to your account and buy the stock. Correct. And change your mind. And change your mind. Um, you know, you don't have to pitch a story to the founder. Um, they don't they don't know who you are. They don't care. The company doesn't care who owns its shares. Um, but actually what I think one trend that I underestimated through that is the idea that private and being involved in a private company, particularly at the seed stage, mm-hmm. is just tangible. And there's a you know, capitalism always moves, it always changes. And, mm-hmm. and this idea that people want to be invested in something tangible mm-hmm. um, and, and just get involved rather than passively owning stock mm-hmm. is huge. And I think a lot of what we're seeing around seed investing, it's, you, you could, you know, whether it's kind of the status of being 
maybe because you can't just log on and buy the stock. So there mm -hmm. is a status element to it because mm -hmm. you've kind of it's a bit more competitive and you've got to be invited into the decent deals. Mm -hmm. Partly as well because it just, as I say, it's more tangible. You're involved. You're doing something that's impactful, having an impact, a direct impact on the real economy, less abstract than owning stocks. That's pretty powerful to a whole generation. Um, yeah, it's like a modern way to be activist. Like everybody's pitching me apps that will turn, you know, and say got bought by Robin and I was a small investor. Oh, you know, all these kids are going to become public uh, Carl Icons or public market uh, modern Ackmans or whoever these uh, activists are. But really, it's easier to be an activist by writing a check into a private company. Yeah, that's right. Exactly right. Exactly right. And you get involved. Uh, you know, you can tell, and if it's, you can tell your friends. Um, so there's that element to it as well. And it's more of a story than just, oh, I own a bit of stock. Yeah, really interesting. So if, Gundir, well, I'll c come back to the uh, last question. So what I see is, and let's let's think through this through fintech, there was, you know, Knut and I, and I don't know how old are you, Mark? How old are you, Howard? I'm 56. Uh, and that, so that's 62 Canadian. How, how old are you? <laughs> 68 Canadian. How old are you? I'm 50. All right, so you're a young man. Knut's uh, 72. <laughs> uh, in Corona years, you're 60. Knut's 60. So, so when I was a kid, a Jewish kid, you had to be a doctor, lawyer, accountant, uh, being an entrepreneur, meaning having one sock store, there was no internet, no fax. So it's like you're, you're, if you didn't have a good location, you were fucked. You had a furry or a deli or you know a store, right? Yeah. And there was no spreadsheet. So I think the first big bang for... America around growth and acquisitions was the the I call it like we were la we were land then cloud right like land based economy now cloud based economy but the big bang was basically Excel spreadsheet which allowed people to just merge and share numbers and you know obviously you had to build trust but it goes from paper and taping paper together in pencil and one mistake threw off the whole thing to Excel which allowed the world to just merge and then. Uh, the cloud, which makes businesses more robust, higher margins, harder to fail. Uh, so you have this glut of successful or, or not successful, but they don't have to die companies versus in a land-based economy, you know, nine out of 10 businesses failed. So you, being, a, being an investor was stupid. You know, you waited for companies to go public and have robust business models, yada, yada, yada. And so I, that's just my thesis, and I'm sticking with it for now. And, and, and you saying that technology is, is, is hard to stop, just is a reminder that, yeah, value isn't, it's fun for all the value guys to have their moment in the light, but growth isn't going away. It may, valuations may come down, but growth still matters. In the fintech side, it feels like with this 70%, 80% correction in PayPal, in Square, in Robinhood, and soon to be seen in the private fintech markets, uh, while the banks and MasterCard stay at all-time highs, or within 5%, 10%, like the S&P of all-time highs, that maybe FinTech 1.0 or 2.0, whatever we're going to call it, was a bluff, and the real FinTech innovation is still to come. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, an, interesting, it's, an, interesting, it's an interesting debate. I think uh, there's been a narrative out of Silicon Valley for a long time mm -hmm. that the financial system is broken. Yes. And that it is ripe for disruption. Um, and we've seen that manifest through neobanks, and through the likes of PayPal and Square, mm -hmm. we've seen it through, and we've seen it through. We've seen it from outside of the banking system as well. So, what Amazon is doing, 
less in the US, but you go to India and Amazon is very active in financial services in India. Right. Um, actually, WhatsApp is active in Brazil in payments. And, uh, and Google is active in India as well, also in payments. Got it. So what these big tech companies are doing in fintech is is also very impressive. But not so, in the US, more hidden around the rest of the world, you're saying? Yeah, I think so. Different regulatory frameworks, different, again, back to the point about path dependence, different historical structures around which financials are built. Mm -hmm. So, for example, so in China, we went we went straight from cash to wallets and we missed out the credit card stage that is so prominent in the US, for example. Um, so there is a lot, a lot going on. So there's a lot going on. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot going on. So is fintech the real thing, or is it is it neo banks and you buy Square and PayPal and say, well, everybody's no one knows anything. It's just an overcorrection, or was it all a bluff on the way to digital? Does that cross your mind, or you just yeah, no, you know, it so I, think, I think it is the real thing. But these things always take time, and they always yeah. take longer than people in the trenches in Silicon Valley specifically anticipate. And the best example I always come to about this is Western Union. Western Union is publicly traded. It's actually one of the oldest companies, kind of went through a bankruptcy, came out of a bankruptcy, but it's one of the oldest companies in the US. It was one of the original constituents of the Dow Jones Index mm -hmm. over a hundred years ago. And on multiple occasions, it's been it's 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 been disrupted. It was disrupted initially in its telegraph business by the telephone, uh, and then it was disrupted subsequently. And now the disruption threat it's facing is why go to a Western Union agent, put cash across the counter, pay a huge rate to get that cash remitted to a relative somewhere else, Mexico, Philippines, wherever it might be. When you can do it over your mobile phone, you can do it. You can do it using a whole range of different solutions that are now available. Um, but these things take time. They take. Western is still around. It's generating a lot of cash along the way. And so I think you know tomorrow. I can't remember that quote. People used it at the time of the pandemic. In decades happen. I can't remember. <laughs> no, I yeah, fifteen minutes take forever. Yeah, the quote. Yeah, but as I say, things take a lot longer to play out than. I think investors often anticipate. And then what about the Fed? If we're panicked about it, just to bring that back, you're sitting in your chair today and things can change tomorrow. What's your gut around what the Fed, like they've been pretty, they've been saying they're going to raise rates, but if the S&P dropped 10%, I guess because the large cap weighted stocks caved tomorrow, things could change again. But where, where you sit today, what do you think the Fed is going to do? I, I think they're going to raise. Um, it kind of feels, and this is where we are data dependent, it feels with the geopolitical tensions that are emerging more recently, that financial, ultimately financial conditions are a function of the Fed, mm -hmm. but they're also a function of animal instincts and risk appetite in the industry. And right now, financial conditions are tightening because risk appetite is retrenching, nothing mm -hmm. to do with the Fed, it's more to do with geopolitical issues. Mm -hmm. So maybe the Fed gets a buy because of that and doesn't have to hike as aggressively. Um, there are many moving parts and it's very complex. And does, uh, go ahead, sorry. We think about the Fed as the 
ultimate regulator. But when it comes to fintech and mm-hmm. fintech investing specifically, another thing is worth bearing in mind isn't so much the level of interest rates, which the Fed sets, but also the Fed as and the FDIC and the Treasury and all the other regulators globally, how they, what their perspective is around, around fintech, because clearly their absolute mandate, it's actually interesting, their absolute mandate is not competition. It is financial stability. And as many of these fintechs get bigger, the impact they have on financial stability increases mm-hmm. and therefore the regulatory scrutiny increases. So when they're small, it's kind of fine. And we saw that in China with Ant, mm-hmm. whose IPO was pulled over a year ago. Mm-hmm. IPO was pulled and it subsequently was restructured because it was so big that it was affecting, it had to be regulated as a financial company. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of regulatory arbitrage that goes on. You know, PayPal's got $40 billion of customer deposits sitting in its wallets. Yeah, floating around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, floating around. doesn't offer insurance the way Wells Fargo offers insurance. Super interesting. Um, so, which is kind of fine. People maybe coming back to the financial crisis have forgotten that banks can go bust. Actually, it's been over a year. It's been it October 2020. 20, I think the last bank in the US went bust. Mm-hmm. Typically happens on a Friday. They shut it down over the weekend. And these things happen. Um, so people are, are kind of less sensitive to bank risk. But obviously, as, as they get bigger, um, you know, that $40 billion that PayPal's got is pretty sizable compared with a typical bank in the US. As they get over a certain size, regulatory scrutiny increases, uh, kind of non-linearly, as we've seen in China. And that's kind of a risk that's a residual risk that many of the fintechs specifically face i think in the future as well that's super interesting because it's imagine a run on paypal where every kid's taking their six dollars that is sitting in the cloud and puts it back into their bank but is it i guess you're saying that's a possibility theoretically that that could happen yeah i mean it happened 15 so 15 that's right i mean 15 years ago when there was insurance um it, it happened. We saw we saw a run on we saw a run on city we saw a run on washington mutual which was closed down we've seen in our lifetime We've seen we've seen unprecedented runs on banks. Really interesting. I don't think there's so much new, including myself, money in the markets. We haven't thought through all the permutations of this. We just assume growth is what mattered, and it's complicated. These companies were uh, the money flowed in. They got bigger than not even their fault. They're just being public and in the limelight, and all these apps allowed you to buy them, and no one looked at the fundamentals. And all of a sudden, everybody's starting to look at the fundamentals. So it's really, like you said, the dispersion is fascinating. This is a great time to be an investor. It's just not as easy as it was. Um, well, I really appreciate your time. I'd love to bring you back when the markets are uh, bananas or when fintech uh, is doing weird things. Um, I really appreciate uh, the writing, net, net interest. When did you start writing? I started in May of 2020. So it was kind of pandemic-induced. I just recovered from COVID, and uh, and, I, and I, now I read a lot of stuff, consume a lot of stuff, and this was a great way to turn it around and actually create something from it. And, and it's taken off. So from May of 2020 to now, we've got about 28,000 subscribers, and it's just a lot of fun. Fantastic. And you're getting good feedback from it. You do it because you, you're helping yourself, but it's an extra joy to have other people read it. Exactly right. So uh, all the best in the UK and, uh, you know, help do your part. Uh, keep inflation down. 
Stop spending money. <laughs> Just stop spending. Yeah. Stop spending and huddle in a corner. And uh, my next time through the UK, we'll go. Uh, we won't have a Guinness because that's Irish or Scottish, whatever it is. We'll, have, we'll have, just have a that's warm a English beer. We'll have a warm English beer somewhere. Is that right? Warm English, or am I totally screwing that up too? No, that, you can have a warm beer, but fish and chips. Actually, fish and chips. You know, the oh, Jewish food came in from Eastern Europe. My favorite. Fish and chips was introduced to the UK by the by the Jews of Eastern Europe. Those crazy Jewish people. So uh, great for having you on. All the best in the UK, and we'll we'll talk soon. Good stuff. Cheers. Thank you, Howard. It's been a pleasure. Knut, I wanted to bring in someone who's seen a few things, you know, not just growth and uh, uh, lollipops. So, you know, it's traded through a few crises. I feel, again, my spider tingly is something's going on. Yeah. There's more uh, hope than fear out there in this tape. It's like growth will overcome. But some interesting points that I think you made. Yes, and he and he does it from a different part of the world. Where listen, what he says, they still care about the Fed in the UK. Which it's you know the US drives a lot of this stuff. We're in a lot of power that we don't know that we're wielding over over the UK and all these people. So um, really interesting guy. The blog is netinterest.co. He is at Mark M A R C Ruby R U B Y on Twitter. Really great takes on fintech banking lending, etc from an older, wiser gent, but also loves speculating and doing some angel investing and, you know, not an old fuddy-duddy of, of fintech, uh, you know, thinks enough smart people have moved to crypto. So uh, a really fun read. Little little uh, on the uh, geeky side for people like me, but you can learn a lot. Uh, thanks, Canute. You're listening to Panic with Friends uh, once a week. If you go to, if you subscribe, you go to Apple, Spotify, Google, search my name, Howard Linson. Subscribe. You will get a podcast once a week. I talk to founders, investors, traders, uh, entrepreneurs, and venture capitalists. We try and get a little bit ahead of the curve. Uh, have a great day, everybody. See you next week. Thanks, Canute. Howard Lindzen is the founder and general partner at Social Leverage. All opinions expressed by Howard and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of social leverage or stock twits. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. Guests may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast.